0: Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Blocology, evidence based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Ewan Lawson. So today, well, I had one idea for today and I had an episode already and actually I've changed my mind and I've decided to do a little bit more, just of a short personal update for this episode. Um, I'm going to be referring to a few bits and bobs and show notes will of course be at blocology.io forward slash zero two five. So I'm just going to crack on with that and I'll explain a little bit about why I didn't put out the episode I was going to put out. So, part of the reason for this is that basically last March my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. So, she found a lump, and um, went to the doctor, was seen in the usual sort of time frame, and we you know, we got the bad news that it was breast cancer. Um and then she went on to have a lumpectomy, she needed a revision of that, so she ended up having a couple of operations. Um and she went on to have radiotherapy over the summer and that was about a month ago that that finished so actually the whole pretty much the bluecology podcast has coincided with this whole period of time when she's had breast cancer and i was thinking of doing an episode all about kind of no we haven't been going around telling people about it and one of the reasons i haven't mentioned it on the podcast at all is because sophie hasn't made it um public knowledge we've told people as it's come up we haven't been hiding it but we've just not gone out and advertised it but she did put a post on facebook this week Because um, she went out and did something called the Breka Swim Run uh, in Jersey, the Breca Jersey. So if you don't know what Swim Run is, it's basically, um, you know, you wear a kind of a slightly modified wetsuit, a shorty wetsuit. And it involves a lot of swimming and a lot of running, funnily enough. Um, But it tends to be like, you know, there might be a short swim of 500 meters and a run of 3K, then a swim of a kilometer and a run of 10K. And, you know, it goes on. You're usually in and out of the water several times. It's a pretty challenging event and she went off to do Breca swim Breca jersey so flew down to jersey and did that and actually it took them 10 i think and i can't remember exactly how much running there is off the top of my head it's well over a marathon something like 45 46 kilometers i think it might even be 50 kilometers and 5 or 6 kilometers of swimming as well so a big event and she's done it just 4 weeks after she finished radiotherapy and um, so she put on a post there just and i think the idea the idea was just to highlight the fact that there's, um, I think she just wanted to highlight the fact that having breast cancer isn't necessarily, or having any kind of cancer isn't necessarily a terminal diagnosis. Life goes on. Everybody knows that. And actually, it doesn't. It's taken a bit of a chunk out of our lives for five or six months, but things move on. And um, she's put it out there anyway, and she's had lots of really positive responses. And it's been really nice to. It's um, been really nice to see. But it's also put me in a position where I can talk about it a little bit. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the effect on. I was thinking, well, you know, what has it ha- effect has it had on me? And what effect does having, say, a diagnosis of breast cancer have on male partners in particular? And so, from the blocology angle. And so, I looked at some of the research and some of the literature, but then I decided it was just self indulgent, uh, real, just kind of bullshit. And talking, it just felt a bit wrong talking about the effect on male partners around the breast cancer thing. Now, it's not because I don't think it's important. Because I do, you do have to think about the wider implications. You know, you certainly wouldn't think twice about considering the impact of, on children of a cancer diagnosis um, as well. Now, Sophie, it's a really unusual diagnosis. And Sophie's just in her early forties. You know, has got all the risk. All the risk factors are in the right direction for her in terms of smoking, alcohol, exercise, but it still happens. But I think over the course of this, what we've been very aware of is that th- there's a lot of the media portrayal of cancer can be quite tough. It's all about, you know, you often in this just last week there was the um the BBC Radio 5 journalist that died of breast cancer and obviously had a very aggressive cancer hit her very hard and I think it was really less than 2 years, maybe just 18 months from diagnosis until the point at which she died. Actually that's not that's not the case in most cancers. And it's probably not the case in most breast cancers. There's an interesting kind of thing that if you ask somebody what the most common age to get breast cancer is, I think there's some evidence, but I haven't been able to put my finger on this exactly, that it says, well, it's women in their 40s or women in their 30s. And this is because there's this real sort of tragedy associated with, and it of course is a tragedy, a, a mother dying with young children in particular, and they're the ones that tend to hit the media, but there's a real kind of recall bias that people have because of it. The most common age to get, so if you give people a group of, you know, is breast cancer most common in the 20s, women in their 20s, women in their 40s, or women in their, say, 60s and 70s, people are loft and plump for 40s. But cancer is, and across the board almost entirely, a disease that gets more common as you get older. The right answer is it's more common in women in their 60s, 70s, 80s. As you get older, most cancers, particularly breast cancer, get more common. And actually the other thing about it is and you see the media portrayal of cancer that one in three people will get it. But actually most people will get it when they're very old and um, rather than when they're younger. And most people won't die from it. And that's the other thing about cancer and mortality is that most people these days will be fixed. But there is a risk, and Sophie certainly appreciated that, that even sometimes and the healthcare professionals who've been involved in her care have been great, but there is just that sometimes the sense that they speak to you as if you're dying and, you know, that kind of extra layer of super sympathy is kind of layered on and larded on and it leaves you feeling a bit, you know, and that's quite upsetting in itself because you don't just quite get treated normally. You get started, you get, you get handled with kid gloves as if you're dying and actually most people aren't dying and they can be fixed. And Sophie's cancer has been, you know, we, we think that the job has done that. She's had her treatment, had her surgery. That, that really didn't knock her out very much at all. When she was, we were up in Scotland, in RSA just a, a two or three days after the second surgery, and she was swimming in the sea, out running. Uh, life was pretty much back to normal. Um, and so it hasn't had a massive impact. And the cancer has been relatively low. Has been quite low grade wasn't in the lymph nodes. We've had no requirement for chemotherapy. So everybody's experience is different. And so I kind of wouldn't be judgmental about that. But it's a re- just a really kind of valuable lesson, I think, that we've certainly to bear in mind that when it comes to this kind of cancer, when it comes to cancer and diagnosis, actually most people get better. And there's a We do have a slight problem. It's in the cancer research charities' interests to kind of emotionally move you. And of course, the most moving cases are the most tragic and the ones where Women do die young, particularly if they die with young children They're, that's extraordinarily emotive but it isn't the case it isn't for for most people that isn't won't be their experience of cancer and um I've had other family members who've had cancer just in the past few years and um are, have been cured as well so that's kind of at least three members of my immediate family that've had cancer and look like they've been fixed um and they should it's highly likely that they'll have no further problems. So we need a kind of, it's trying to keep that sense of perspective is really important. What I would say though, is it has been stressful for months and for all sorts of reasons, you know, there's no getting away from that, but it's quite low. It's been low grade and it's, I've really noticed it's been quite, it's been cumulative and you can't underestimate that kind of persistent low grade stress. Um, I've noticed that um, I've, got, I've kept on going with my exercise and doing my other things, but I've actually not been able to do as much exercise as I would normally um, and I've really struggled with clinical work, uh, certainly in the initial period, that I just wasn't, my head wasn't in the right place to do clinical work. But yeah, especially when you don't quite know what was going on, when everything was uncertain and we didn't know whether, where, how, you know, what type of tumour it was, how far it spread, et cetera. Um, that was really, and, and clinical work, didn't cope well. So you have to, you kind of have to make allowances for that. I think in terms of men's health, what I haven't been, I haven't been very good at speaking to people about it, particularly. And I think it has also emphasized that I don't have a great, I've got my social circles far too small. I've spent far too much time over the last 10 to 15 years working, spending time with my family, and I have neglected my social circles. And I haven't got, you know, frankly, I haven't got a lot of friends now to speak to on a regular basis. And so it's really, and I've always talked about this, you know, kind of, it's one of the things you need to get right in your life, exercise, sleep, being careful with alcohol, all those sort of good behaviors. But that social side is really important. And it's also been interesting about how how other men have reacted, and you know I've certainly seen guys, I've certainly met guys who you know quite easy to talk about it, careful to ask. I've been careful about it, but I've also people that I would have expected who have treated me as if it was a contagious disease, and I was going to give it to them or their wives in some way, and I've just seen nothing of them. So you kind of do learn who your supportive friends are in that regard. But I think if I need if there's any lessons for me in the next few months, and we're just getting back to normal now, and uh, interestingly, there's a kind of I'm having a bit of for me I'm having a bit of a I don't know what, what quite what it is, but now that everything is passed, and I've I've recognised everything's gone past, I'm probably in a bit of a dip, if anything, and I guess it's kind of that kind of all that low all that kind of low grade stress and that slight adrenaline rush you've got constantly going on, which isn't good for you. Well, when it's dipped, my mood has dipped a little bit in the last few weeks. And so kind of an awareness of that is really important. I mean, all I need to do is keep doing the sleep. I need to, I can raise my exercise a little, but I think, as I've already said, one of the things I need to do is get out and be more sociable and spend time with people and not just be focused on uh, kind of uh, rather, and I, you know, I am a, I am very much a um, kind of fairly introspective person, um, is, is actually, but make sure I actually be a little bit an introverted. But just because I'm an introvert doesn't mean I want to be on my own all the time. Um and so that's an important aspect. So it's just that kind of recognition. So um if you've had any similar experiences yourself, get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Um I hope you'll um forgive me for going on about it this time, but I think it was probably I just wanted to kind of rather than get bogged down and kind of turn it all into an evidence-based thing, it's just slightly give you my honest. View on where we are with things. Okay, so on a slightly different note, I just wanted to finish with the one thing, which is about more about evidence and other things. I've been reading this week, um, and I've just found these amazing. This if now this is more applicable. Now I know we have some writers that listen, and particularly if you're writing nonfiction. I think actually elements of this could work for fiction as well. But if you're an academic at all, or you have to write about evidence, then I've really been digging into some really interesting stuff in the past week. And most of it has come out of Germany. So I think there's been very little in English so far. And I stumbled across this book called How to Take Smart Notes, One Simple Technique to Boost Writing, Learning and Thinking for Students, Academics and Nonfiction Book Writers by Zonka Ahrens, I think is how it's pronounced. And How to Take Smart Notes, let's just call it that. The one simple technique thing is slightly wrong. It, there, isn't, there, there is maybe one just underlying principle here, but actually the book itself is quite weighty i want to say dense but that makes it that suggests it's hard to get into but it's it's not your fluffy kind of you know get things done David allen kind of book this it's got it's got some kind of serious social science and research in it and it takes a lot of reading it's it's kind of it's substantial in that regard and i have discovered i have read there's been so much in there and what this is all about is something called a zettelkasten now, um, I think Zettelkasten is German for slip box. So I'd have to check that. But basically, it's all about this German sociologist, or stems from this German sociologist called Nicholas Luhmann. And basically, he, ha- he had this quite famous system, at least famous in Germany. And um, he called a slip box. And so every time he had a new bit of knowledge or he read something, he'd create a little card. And then he had quite a complex system for how he indexed those and linked them to each other. But the real magic was in the way that he linked them. And it's relatively easy to do with computers these days. But what he effectively did was almost create like this second brain in his slip box. And wh- by the time I think he'd, he'd had tens of thousands of notes in his slip box by the time he got to his end of his career. But what happened was that he, was, he had an astonishing output. And I think he wrote, you know, he wrote dozens of books, hundreds of papers. And it all stemmed from this slip box system. And um in the book How to Take Smart Notes by Zonka Arens, he kind of goes through that slip box system. And so that's the one simple technique. And he goes it in some through it in some detail. But it might be one simple technique, but there's quite a complex interaction that goes on with your slip box when you get this pr- build this process and you build this Zettel casting. And I'm blown away by how powerful I think this is and how I've been kind of moving towards this, but not quite and just around the fringes with some of my writing and reading, but I'm very aware that a lot of it gets lost and I read a paper and I just kind of, I have a snippet here and a snippet there. But the slip box system, the Zettel casting, is an incredible way to bring it all together. So um, I'll, I'll put a link in there in the show notes. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly hoping to talk about this more in the future. But um, if you've got any interest in kind of developing the way you write, the way you think is what I think is really powerful for it, because it allows you to kind of think about things in all sorts of different directions. And I've already picked up a ton of um, techniques and evidence-based techniques from the book about how I'm going to go about teaching our medical students as well. So any interest in that, check out the book. I'll put the show notes on um, and um, we'll maybe come back and circle back to that again in the future. Um, Okay, so uh, that's it for today. Um, Just relatively short. um, And um, in the future, I've got some interviews lined up with, um, gosh, well, I've got some stuff about strength training coming up, certainly hoping to cover some stuff on mental health. I'm going to talk to my co-author, I hope, um, in the burnout book about burnout a bit more after last week's sort of more personal update. So we're going to cover that in a bit more depth. Uh, I'm going to talk to some researchers about barefoot running, I hope, and um, uh, other areas around men's sexual health. So lots of things coming up. um, And uh, hopefully we're going to have a really exciting autumn of interviews and covering lots of different areas. And um, we'll look forward to that. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again.